The title this morning is What is God Like? What is God Like? And it's a question that many people ask um, and many people struggle with this question of what is God like? They may not ask it as bluntly as that, but that's often the sentiment behind their thinking. You know, they, they may go, well, if I formed a religion, this is what my God would be like. So they're trying to unpack what God should be like, could be like, how they would form their God. It often amazes me people's understanding or perception of God. And it's often formed by their own upbringing, um, from the people that they've interacted with, if they've been around overly religious Christians, sometimes that can have a negative effect on their view of God. The media can have a huge impact on how people view and understand God. And sadly, more often than not, their experience or perception is so far removed from what is true, from who Jesus revealed God to be. There's a famous cartoon, if we can go to the next slide, um, whereby God, <laughs> grey-haired God, is sitting by his computer screen, ready to push the smite button when he sees someone walking along and then dropping that piano on them. Sadly, God has a bad reputation in some people's mind. He is made out to be a sadistic monster, a powerful and spiteful punisher of people who have a tough enough time already as they're just walking through their day-to-day -day life. Most people, even if they believe in God at all, believe that he is a power or a force and that power is about the domination of others. The God I know is the exact opposite of that. Let me tell you about a story of a pastor that some of us may be able to relate to. So he was a young man in his first years of ministry. He was married with two children and he went to a church in what was regarded the tough part of the city that they lived in. He gave everything he had to his ministry and to the hurting community around him. The work was extremely demanding and the salary was low. As time went on, his marriage began to crumble because he was never at home. He was always out, always busy, always meeting with people, always helping someone else. And eventually his wife, unable to take any more, left with the children. And as his marriage failed, the church then asked him to resign. So the young man who set out to serve God found himself alone and broken. The next months were horrible and he had to face the truth that he had not turned out to be the man, the father, the husband, the pastor that he had planned to be. And unable to cope, he went to a senior, um, senior minister, a local senior minister for help. And the older pastor listened to his story and then gave some rather unusual advice. He said to this young pastor, look, I've got some people to meet with, so I'm gonna head out but I want you to stay here and sit in my study and see that painting on the wall over there. I want you to reflect on it and tell me what you think when I get back. It was Rembrandt's prodigal son painting. So for two hours, the young pastor looked on it, looked at it. He thought of the son who had lost everything and he thought of himself. 
The son ended, the prodigal son ended up with no money, homeless, helpless, and alone at the bottom of a pile. And there he felt worthless and unloved. The pastor saw himself as the son. As the young pastor continued to look at the painting, he had a revelation. Not about himself, but about God and his understanding of God. He broke down crying and sobbing, and suddenly he understood. All his life he had seen God as the strong and stern and tough and demanding and, and even harsh and inflexible God. And that's why he worked himself so hard. That's why he sacrificed himself so much, because he thought he had to please this demanding God. But now he saw the father embracing the son. The bad son who had done so much wrong, he saw God as tender, generous, forgiving, and loving. God is pure love. You know, even when we fail and we make mistakes and we hurt God, He is still loving and He is still forgiving. All the words of the examples of Jesus' life came flooding back through this young pastor's soul. And two hours later, the older pastor returned knowing that God would have done what was needed to be done in that young pastor's life. All three parables in Luke 15, so you've got the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. All of these parables talk about the anguish and the pain following the loss of something valuable. It causes so much torment that there is no rest until that which is lost is found. And the point that Jesus is making in these parables is that because God is love, He lives in the pain and the distress of being separated for, from us, and He will never rest until we are restored to Him. I want us to turn to Luke 4, and I'm going to have it up on the screen there. We're going to pick it up halfway through verse 16. So Jesus, he has arrived into Nazareth and he's at the synagogue on the Sabbath. So halfway through verse 16, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now what is interesting about this is the words that Jesus chooses to quote from Isaiah. He does it in the most striking way because that's not the exact quote from Isaiah. Jesus picks his words very carefully and purposefully when he quotes Isaiah. 
What Isaiah said, if we can go to the next slide, what Isaiah said was the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. What is significant is that Jesus stops at proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. He rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant. He purposefully omits judgment or the vengeance of God. He purposefully suppresses the talk of retribution and anger. He puts the idea of judgment on hold because that will come later at the cross. What he wants to declare is the understanding of God's love towards the lowly of society and then through his life to demonstrate God's love. See, much of Jesus' ministry is changing people's perception of God. Much of Jesus' ministry is changing people's perception of God. Our perception of God, even if we believe there is no God, affects all our life and how we live our day-to-day life. It affects how we live, how we behave, how we relate to others, how we feel about ourselves and the universe. It's all determined by our perception of of God. And Jesus came to reveal God, to reveal the Father's heart and to restore our relationship to him. So in thinking about what God is like, I, I want you to think about this question. What are the most important words in the Bible for a Christian? What are the most important words in the Bible for a Christian? See, the general characteristics of a religion can often be determined by examining wise sayings or particular portions of scripture a religion chooses to accentuate. In Christianity, probably the most widely memorized verse is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3, verse 16 to 17. See, those simple words speak of the depth of God's love for us. Of the the universality of his love, of the Trinity, because two out of the three there are mentioned. And of a reconciliation process of faith, on my part and grace on God's part. It speaks of God's desire to save. However, when Jesus was asked what are the most important words, he quoted a different verse. I mean, of course he was Jewish and John wasn't written then, so he wasn't able to quote from John. But Jesus quoted words that are considered the most important a Jew can know. 
The rabbis say of these words that Jesus quoted that they should be the first words of Torah that our children learn, the first words we speak of when when we rise every morning, the last words we speak before we go to sleep at night, our comfort in life's most trying times and the final words upon our lips at death. So what are those words? Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. If we can have them, yep, fantastic. Which means, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Does that surprise you? Why are these considered to be the most important words by the rabbis and Jesus when the Bible contains so many other profound words? You know, why not in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth or the 23rd Psalm or the Ten Commandments? Why these simple words? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is asked by a Jewish scholar to name the most important commandment. With all the Old Testament to choose from, Jesus begins his answer with the words many Christians dismiss as insignificant. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. See, most Christians know that Jesus said loving God wholeheartedly is the most important commandment and loving our neighbor as the way we love ourselves is the second most commandment. But how many of us realize that Jesus prefaced both of those with the Shema, that central statement of Jewish Belief, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If Jesus places the Shema at the head of the most important commandments, clearly there is something important to be learned from these words. Christians tend to take the oneness of God for granted, and we focus instead on the Trinity. And again, this is only natural as that's the revelation that we have received. But overlooking the Shema, overlooking the oneness of God can lead to a complete lack of appreciation for its importance and an understanding who God is and what He is like. God is one is the foundation for virtually everything that we can know about the Lord. The oneness of God means that there is no subdivision or or composite aspect to his nature. The oneness of God means that, that there's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. God is whatever he is in the most complete and pure way possible. God is whatever he is in the most complete and pure way possible, meaning that no characteristic can apply to him in a partial or limited way. In other words, the Lord is like a flawless diamond. You know, when people say um, a gem is without flaws, they mean it contains no cracks, 
no grain of different material, no combination of colors. It is one thing only. God is what he is, absolutely. So if the Shema is correct, no one or nothing is capable of adding to or taking something away from God. God is beyond the power of of any other force in the universe. We cannot add to who God is, nor can we take away from who he is. Nothing that we do changes him. God is unchanging. He is immutable and he does not change. As he is today, so he will be tomorrow. And that gives us hope. There is no insecurity with God. The Shema reveals other important um, aspects of God's nature. The Lord's changelessness means that he does not learn or grow, unlike theories in vogue among some modern theologians. Growth and learning would require the addition of new information to God's mind or his essence. But he does not grow or learn. He is who he is. God is pure. He is all-powerful. He is unchanging. He is all-knowing and he is ever-present. It seems that Jesus' choice of the Shema to preface the definition of the most two important commandments speaks volumes about God and his nature. But the Shema teaches us one other lesson about God, and I think this is most important of all, and we we talked on it just slightly before, that God is flawless. God is flawless. If the Lord is good, he is perfectly good. If he is just, he is perfectly just. If he is loving, he is perfectly loving. God does not make mistakes. Otherwise, God would be a composite creature as I am. A little bit good and a little bit bad, a little bit fear sometimes and then a bit unfair other times. But the shimmer, the oneness of God, means that he is not a consolidation of things and must therefore be fully and completely whatever he is. In short, the shimmer means that God is perfect. He is perfect. God will not be fair today and then unfair tomorrow. And he will not be good. Look at that rain come down. It's great. (laughs) He will not be good today and then a little bit evil tomorrow. He will not be evil back in the Old Testament and then good in the New Testament. God is who he is in all its fullness. And that's great comfort in a world that's increasingly frightening, increasingly uncertain. It is great comfort to believe that I can count on God completely and consistently, whatever he is, for who he is forevermore. And this is a vital message with important implications for our daily lives. It's our, it's our navigation We've touched on this in other messages, but one of the most important questions or 
when I go around and see people, one of the questions that people are asking, particularly younger people, is what is truth? What is truth? Truth points us in the direction that we go. So with so many self-proclaimed, self-revealed, self-I-feel truths out there, that is why we have so many lost people walking in many different directions. Because they arranged their lives to accommodate the truth rather than the other way around. They do that regardless of personal cost. Are they right? Well, assuming that God does not change and that God is good, it follows that truth and good do not change either. Assuming that God does not change and that God is good, it follows that truth and good do not change either. See, so long as the sun shines, sunlight remains warm. Yeah, it's not now, but you know. The sunlight remains warm and bright even if I stand shivering in the shade. The sunlight, the sunlight doesn't change. The sun doesn't change, the sunlight doesn't change, even if I stand in the shivering cold shade. Because the sunlight doesn't depend on me, it depends on the sun. Similarly, if God is one, his goodness must remain constant, even if it burns me at times. Because God's oneness sets the standard when it comes to moral reality. If the shimmer is true, then truth and justice do not depend on me. Like the sunlight from the sun, they emanate as fixed realities from a flawless God who is one. If the team want to come up. So what is God like? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one. He is pure. He is perfect. He is unchanging. God is who Jesus revealed himself to be. He is what Jesus has to say. He is altogether good, altogether worthy, and altogether true. You know, we're going to come into a time of communion now. And as we do, I want us to reflect uh, on the oneness of God. As we're going to have the little um, communion um, emblems handed out. And as you take what represents the bread, what represents the broken body of Jesus, and as you take the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus, reflect on the oneness, the wholeness, the purity of who God is. God is love. He is altogether love. He is altogether 
love and he lives in the pain and the distress of being separated from us and he will not rest until we are restored to him. So communion, as we, as we take this communion together, it is a time to pause and allow us to reflect and um, allow us to experience afresh the power of the cross so that we may be restored to God. As the team play behind, take this time to breathe. And then as we finish communion and we stand and worship, ask God the question, what is it, God, that you are wanting to reveal to me today? What are those things that need a breakaway about how you've seen God? What are those things that you've got a perception, you've got an understanding of who God is, but what is God wanting to reveal to you this morning? Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for who you are. We cannot fathom. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways. We cannot even imagine or think our way to who You are and that is why You sent Your Son Jesus to earth. You came to earth to reveal Yourself to us. And Lord, we thank You for that. We thank You that You came to walk among us, to be with us, to show us true north to show us the truth and the direction that we need to be following. Lord, it took you to the cross, but you would do it all over again just for the one. You were so badly beaten and, and, and abused and, and insults thrown at you and yet you took it all knowing that You took the sin of the world upon Yourself so that we may be restored to the Father. Lord, as we take these elements this morning, would You bless them? Would You bless them, Father God, that as we take them, that we would be reminded of who You are, of what You are like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.